Welcome to episode 23 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. James Cohn here. We are coming from 7th Ward, New Orleans. Uh, it is a nice, cool afternoon. Very um, breezy. Nice change of pace. All the uh, end of the year 2016 stuff is dead and gone, but I'm still catching up on some of those movies. Yeah, not really. I saw a few last <laughs> week that would have made the, the list. Yeah. From last year, but whatever. Well, the, the the main thing I've been doing lately, uh, on besides that, is I started as like a New Year's resolution this like fifty two films by women pledge. Because mm-hmm. I had counted all the films by female directors I'd watched last year. And out of like the four hundred movies I had watched, forty of them were directed oh, by wow. women. Which is kinda sad. Yeah, that's just like the state of Hollywood, I feel like. Yeah. I mean, you kind of have to search those out. Yeah, you kind of have to like make a conscious effort, which is uh, what this pledge is. It's like, watch one film by a female director a week. So it's 52 films by the end of the year. Yeah, That's, that's not doable. a lot to ask. I've, I've definitely ahead of schedule already, so it'll probably be more than 52. But I've made a couple of cool discoveries since then. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been watching the films of this lady, Doris Wishman, who is kind of like this like female Russ Meyer. She made these like sexploitation movies that are just like... She started off doing Nudie Cuties, which is just... Like, kind of nudist camp movies about just people being naked. It's very, like, fluffy stuff. Mm-hmm. And then later in her career, she started doing these things called roughies, which is a lot. That sounds yeah. a little... That's when dark. it gets, like, really violent. But it's, it's funny that she's not... She's got a very similar aesthetic to Russ Meyer, but her stuff's a lot, like, goofier and not as well-made. So is she... Is it men in the no, pictures? It's, or no, it's, it's still women? Yeah, it's the stuff that would sell, which is just uh, naked women. But um, the, the best one I've seen so far was called Nude on the Moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a nudist colony on the moon. <laughs> so these two astronauts go up there and they like discover that there are aliens and they're just these beautiful people that are naked <laughs> and speak through telepathy. It's like best case scenario. Yeah, it's really goofy. But that one does have men and women. All they're wearing is these like tight, colorful booty shorts. These like kind of like, metallic, colorful booty shorts, and everyone mm. else is topless. And it's just like a really goofy light picture. If you like that kind of like kitschy '60s stuff, this one came out in like '61. It's a really fun, just dumb naked movie. people on the moon. Yeah, it, it's it's all in the Sold. title. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this other lady, I've been watching her stuff. She's only got two horror films, um, and one was kind of interesting, but uh, the other one was amazing. It's called Blood Diner. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's this 1987 sort of supernatural slasher. It's supposed to be a pseudo sequel to Blood Feast, which is a movie I hate. This one is these two brothers pick up the mission to sacrifice women to this goddess to bring her into the world at a blood feast. It's like a live-action cartoon. It's so fucking goofy. There's these characters that are mannequins, and no one makes any mention of the fact that they're not <laughs> real people. People will get like slapped in the back of the head with a shovel, and like their eyeballs will pop out immediately. There's a woman in their vegan restaurant where they serve people human meat, unbeknownst to them. There's a woman, they duck her head in the uh, deep fryer, and it comes out like this giant hush puppy type, like, donut. <laughs> Strange. It's man. such a weird, goofy cartoon of, like, a horror film. I think uh, I'm probably going to be making you watch that for this podcast. Yeah, I might have to check year. that out. Yeah, but those are, like, my two, like, big discoveries so far in is, that yeah. like, 52 Films About Women thing. That's cool. I, I might have to sign on with that that pledge. Yeah, it's really easy. Once you like pay attention to what you're watching, it's not a hard quota to fill at all. Yeah. What have you been watching? Well, since the last time we did the podcast, I've kind of caught up on some 2016 movies. Yeah. Finally saw Clown, which you had <laughs> recommended to me that I, uh, I did enjoy. I thought it was tonally kind of uneven, but it had its moments. Yeah. And it lived up to the premise. I think it's like a... 
it pushes itself a lot further than I expected. Oh, yeah. I mean, just the killing of children is always, like, kind of a taboo. Yeah. And then just a lot of kind of gross Well, it starts sort of off... Stuff. The, the transformation starts off so slow, because he, like, wears a clown costume for his kid's birthday. And then the whole first segment of the movie is him not able to get the clown co- costume off. Right. He's using, like, saws and blades and stuff. Yeah. And the, then he, I thought that was funny. Yeah. It, it, so it's, like, really f- kind of funny at the beginning... The middle is this kind of like the fly, mm-hmm. like body transformation thing, which is kind of eh. And then the end is like a straight up horror movie. So it's kind of all over the place. But I did like them uh, doing the final scene in like a, the Chuck E. Cheese. Oh, yeah, that was smart. Yeah, it was. So it was really good. And kind of in a similar vein, I watched The Boy mm-hmm. finally, which I really liked. Yeah, that's another one that makes up several huge tonal shifts. And it's another one that kind of like has a ridiculous premise, but especially with the boy, it's done like very straight faced. Like I thought the boy it was going to have a lot of like it's winking at me, but it wasn't. It, it played it straight. And then there's like something that happens towards the end that you kind of see coming, but it totally changes yeah. the whole movie. And I I really enjoyed it. I like the uh, middle stretch of that movie where the lady who is taking care of this talking doll just sort of buys into the fact that it is a real talking doll and starts actually following the rules of babysitting it. And Well, I guess if someone's paying you all this money to yeah. do this ridiculous thing, you might as well just do it. I kind of like that she went along with it, yeah. you know? I just think that that stretch is really surprising because you don't really see that often where someone just kind of plays along and things start going better. Because right. you think the doll would like uh, freak out and start murdering her or, or something would happen. But instead there's like this nice little stretch where she's just kind of playing by the rules and everything kind of works out nicely. Yeah, he's a good he's a good boy. He's a good boy. <laughs> Brahms. <laughs> I love that name. Yeah. It's the most like stereotypical like British boy name I can uh, think Brahms. of. Brahms. Brahms. Uh, she calls him Bromsey. <laughs> Bromsey boy. And then the other thing I caught up on from last year was The Fits. Oh, I cool. finally watched it. And I thought it was great and it was really inspiring for like kind of low budget filmmakers. Yeah. And I thought the director did a lot with very little. And uh, that that final, um, I guess, transformation scene or when the, you know, with the song kicks mm-hmm. in and all. I thought that was like one of my favorite scenes from last year yeah so it's a really transcendent moment mm-hmm. the movie like becomes something much greater yeah and i i didn't understand people were sort of like oh this movie didn't make any sense or what was it like about like i'd heard that from a few people mm-hmm. like oh it's hard to like figure out what's going on and it's like no it's not it's yeah. a very straightforward coming of age story for this young girl it just have it has a supernatural element to it that's not nailed down to anything specific Right, it's which just, I kind of liked. It's this ominous, like, dark cloud kind of hanging yeah. over everything. That one has these moments that kind of feel like a horror movie, too. I don't think people Well, especially with that. the sound design. Yeah. The sound has these really, like, high-pitched, ear-piercing kind of moments. Yeah. Like, I'm thinking specifically of the the stretch where the two kids are in the school at night. to try. They, like, sneak in to try on their dance uniforms before they're supposed to. There's an eerie, like, horror film vibe to that That stretch because they're scared yeah. and you just kind of follow their feelings from scene to scene but it but it sort of makes sense when you know what the movie is really about you know her kind of growing up mm-hmm. and going through puberty or 
whatever and it's kind of like dark and she's scared Mm -hmm. and then at the end like you said it's this transcendent moment where she moves beyond that into like acceptance so i no i really loved it It would have definitely been in my top 10 yeah i know that was cc's number one movie year which is pretty awesome yeah and it's a really swift like easy watch and it's on amazon like it was like an hour and 15 minutes there's really no reason not to give it a shot like yeah well um today we're going to be talking about three movies that involve stand-up comedians that get sucked into sort of a crime world which is a very like niche thriller genre i guess and before we get into that, we're going to do a Movie of the Minute, which is our regular recommendation segment. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. We turn over to you this young woman whose dream of riding on a giant swan has brought about her untimely death. Maybe it's your way of telling us to buy America. What is wrong with you? No, I just didn't want to win like this. You stop right there. You are a good person. Good things happen to good people. Really? No, it's pure bullshit, sweetie. You're lucky as hell, so you might as well enjoy it. Let's get you a root beer float. Okay. You guys want some shots? I'm buying. I never liked her, but she didn't deserve to die in the belly of a swan like that. The whole thing's just kind of sad and lame at the same time. And now it's time for our Movie of the Minute segment. This is where we bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. The movie we watched this week was something I used to watch religiously in high school. Uh, I had a secondhand blockbuster VHS of this movie that I used to run into the ground. And I had not seen it until about a week ago when I finally bought a DVD copy as a revisit. We're talking about the mockumentary Drop Dead Gorgeous. Uh, which stars a bunch of late 90s talents like Kirsten Dunst, Brittany Murphy, Amy Adams is in this movie, Denise Richards, a bunch of young girls in a high school beauty contest trying to win the crown of some sort of Mary Kay-type cosmetics line. It's the biggest honor they could earn in their sort of small Midwest town. The richest family in the town, who is headed by Kirstie Alley, uh, wants to control the competition to make sure that only her daughter, Denise Richards, wins the competition and (laughs) sort of stacks the judges against the poor girls in the show so that they won't win. But she's still not satisfied with, with those odds, so she starts murdering the teenagers one by one so that they can not surpass her daughter who is a middling talent at best even though she is very pretty (laughs) i love this movie it's very dark some of the cruelty has not aged well there's a mentally handicapped character played by will sasso that is particularly egregious in a 2017 context but most of the violence and the satire of young girls with eating disorders and the way rich people like own small towns and the way perverts go to these beauty contests for young high school students for unsavory reasons, I think holds up pretty well, and I found a lot of it very funny. James had never seen this before, so Mm -hmm. I have to ask you off the top, what did you think of it? Well, I did think parts of it were very funny. Like, it's a very biting, satirical... uh, I mean, it kind of reminded me of similar sense of humor of, like, Heathers, or, um, or, but also with that mockumentary style, reminded me of, like, Best in Show, and Mm -hmm. so... There were parts of it I found to be very funny. I thought the script was very, very good, but I definitely did not love it. I definitely hated that uh, character. Yeah, the Will Sasso character. Will Sasso. It is a sticking point. Like it, it is worth saying that he gets a lot of screen time. 
and a lot of the humor is it's, cruel at, the, at his expense. Yeah, it's retard jokes. Yeah, over. and some of that, the, the characters in the town say retard a lot in this movie. They do. Which I think was already an offensive term at the time, and I think it's supposed to look bad on them that they look down on this character. But at the same time, the movie asks you to laugh at him in a sort of a cruel way that sort of undercuts its own joke there. Well, I and also I kind of had a similar issue with the anorexia, bulimia jokes. Like, again, in 2017, that feels pretty dated mm-hmm. to me. But I think that is part of the satire. I know the screenwriter actually did pageants when she was younger, so she's into that world. She knows mm-hmm. kind of the scene. And so I think it was coming from a real place of her just trying to satirize everything she saw around her. But in the end, I didn't find the jokes about like mentally handicapped people or bulimia, anorexia. There's a lot of jokes about Mexican labor and I didn't, all that stuff felt pretty dated and not that funny to yeah. me. I, I really liked it more. Like the stuff where the girl's mom burns her hand and then the beer can gets like stuck into her flesh and like... And then later she's at the hospital looking for more beer in the can. Yeah. <laughs> Those kind of gags like I thought were very funny and I one other thing that I really liked about the movie was how you think it's mostly about this competition. And then about two-thirds of the way through the movie, the competition's basically over. And the last part of the movie, I thought, really kind of brought home what what it's really about, is this idea, you know, like the American dream kind of thing. Like, you work hard, and karma, like, if you do good things, good things will come back. And basically, this movie seems to be saying, like, that's all bullshit. Yeah, good things don't happen to good people. Like, sometimes people get lucky, but for the most part... If you're rich, you control things, and if you're poor, you are controlled. And I think that also goes to a lot of the jokes about, like, Mexican labor Mm -hmm. and the fact that the big float, you know, she's like, oh, it smells like gasoline, and she's like, oh, all goods from Mexico smell like that. And then the thing bursts into flames. Yeah, that joke works on in two ways, though. It, it is a joke on Christiality's racism in the film, but also the joke comes off as racist in and of itself. Right. So it is harder to laugh at humor like that now than it was when I was 15 watching this. Like, the cruelty didn't bother me as much back then, but I definitely cringed at a couple moments like that in this time around. Well, I, I don't mind cruelty in comedies necessarily. Like, I something that's offensive doesn't really bother me but it's kind of who it's directed at yeah they're punching down yeah punching down exactly like when they were making fun of like the Kirstie Alley character I really enjoyed because she's just so awful and but that's like you're kind of punching up at the like she's the the rich rich people like PTA mom uptight like thinks everything's owed to her right very privileged she lives in this really dumb looking McMansion that's like in a neighborhood all by itself so it looks so lonely so that was a really nice detail. Yeah. Even though she thinks she's like living the best life. Yeah, and just um, I I don't know I I liked all the the performances from the the girls like mm-hmm. they were all great. Even Denise Richards is pretty good in this movie. Honestly, this is the only cast. this is the only thing I've seen her in that I liked her particularly. Like, yeah. No, I thought she did a really good job, and all the supporting characters like Kirsten Dunst, her mom, and her mom's. Yeah, Al- Allison Janney plays her, like, mom's friend. Friend. She's I, really great. I really like her. Yeah. Um, Brittany Murphy is really funny in this. She's always good, though. Mm-hmm. Amy Adams is really funny in this movie. It's like this sort of 16-year-old nymphomaniac. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I like it. She's like, oh, you can't see the hickeys, can you? Or like, oh, you can't see the scratches. And 
she just keeps going like you can't see the stuff on my thighs and she's like no I can't see anything (laughs) yeah (laughs) but yeah she's doesn't she end up being a stripper Uh, probably I think they show in the credits like that she ends up being a stripper but um, and this has a very MTV vibe to it it feels very dated in the 90s I I liked a lot of the music yeah and stuff like I thought I thought all that was good it definitely um I don't know if you'd agree with this, but it seems pretty standard for that time period. Like when I think late 90s, early 2000s, I think of the culture as being a little mean, mm-hmm. I guess. Like, I don't know. I it's sort of like the lingering effects of like Jerry Springer and like new, kind of new metal, <laughs> new metal and trash television, all that kind of nastiness in the culture i definitely think that this movie fits in perfectly with with that vibe yeah of like the, that time period i mean this is just a year before kristen dunst did bring it on too which is a much like nicer film it's actually like a better movie and funnier in, in its own ways but it's like a cheerleader competition sports movie as opposed to this which is like pitch black comedy about teenagers being murdered yeah and it definitely has this like cult st- I guess it has like a cult status. Like, it, would you consider it a cult classic at this point? It's a it's, very small cult because I think it's like only. It's hard to find. Like, I had yeah. a very hard time finding it. Yeah, um, I had I had to buy the DVD uh, recently. It had been out of print for like years and years. Like, right. uh, so whenever I got rid of all my VHS tapes, that was the last time I had seen this. So it's it's good to see it pop up again. But like we said, it, it, some aspects of it have aged well. But I think for the most part, the movie does come from a POV where it's identifying with poor kids, queer kids, mm-hmm. these girls who are being pressured into anorexia. Even though it seems cruel to make fun of the girl who's like suffering from it, you could see how that satire is like part of the culture they're skewering. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when she's wheeled around on the stage singing Karen Carpenter, it's pre- it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> yeah. And when I was 15, like I thought that was the funniest thing. But like looking back, it's like, oh, that is pretty uh, pretty messed up to like make fun of a child for dying I mean in a way it's kind of admirable that the screenplay is so biting mm-hmm. I mean it really seems like she just went for the the fences like I don't care how offensive this is to people like I'm gonna make or like write the kind of movie that I want to write it, it also seems like when did the John Bonet thing happen was that like mid 90s yeah I like, think so yeah it's definitely post that when people started becoming more critical of beauty pageants and that whole scene but no i i did like it i think if i would have saw it in high school like you're saying it would have been yeah like that for me but seeing it for the first time now in 2017 it just didn't quite like blow me away yeah oh and one other thing that I will say I, I liked about it is how it's kind of like Fargo in the sense that the like town and the like culture of like Minnesota kind of becomes a central character to the whole thing just from like the way people talk and their like interest in like guns and these uh, just the whole like aesthetic of the town. It seemed like the accents are a joke in and of themselves. The culture of that, like, you know, northern culture is like one of the central characters, which I really like. It felt pretty authentic in that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I I definitely enjoyed it. There's there's so many images that I think are like iconic just to me personally. Kristen Dunst tap dancing at her night job, which is putting on makeup on corpses at the morgue. 
So she's like kind of practicing her tap routine and applying makeup to these dead bodies. And there's this scene where Denise Richards sings I Love You Baby to Jesus on the cross and he's on wheels and she sort of like twirls him around Mm -hmm. and slow dances with him in a poodle skirt. There's definitely some like brilliant comedy bits in this that I think kind of make up for moments where you might cringe. Yeah, and one of those things for me was towards the end. It's a pretty repulsive scene, but I... I was like laughing hysterically when they're all puking. puking they get the because they all ate bad shellfish and <laughs> just the image of all these like beauty queens just puking their guts out in this like fancy hotel off of the rafters and just really disgusting. But like I I don't know. Yeah, the, the main character doesn't win any victories here based on her merit as like a talented person who deserves to win but it's pretty obvious that she does. She wins because people are murdered or everyone pukes. Right. Her her big dream in the whole movie is like she wants to be a news anchor mm-hmm. and the, she gets that opportunity because someone, someone gets assassinated right in front of her and she takes over the microphone. And so, yeah, I honestly, that's what I, I really loved about the movie was that, that core message of, because I do think it's it, it rings true. Like a lot of where where you get at in life is just by chance and by sometimes by privilege. someone else's. Yeah, your privilege, but also the downfall of someone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not always for like good reasons. But yeah, no, it was it was very funny though. I enjoyed it. Yeah, a lot of these post Heather's um, comedies don't get the meanness of Heather's. I think like this one and Jawbreaker are probably the two that get that meanness. What's it, and also, what's the movie we watched a while back about a cheerleader? They go to like a camp. Oh, um, but I'm a cheerleader. But I'm a cheerleader. That's another good one too. There's that's a really cool genre of movies. High school oh. teen comedies um, from the '90s. Probably one of the most undervalued comedy subgenres ever. Like there were so many good movies in that yeah, there were at the time. Yeah, this is definitely one of them. But just expect to cringe a little bit <laughs> when you get yeah, to Yeah, some of it some of it is a little dated, but if you can just look past that, there's a lot of good stuff in here. And any moment of Brittany Murphy content is worth treasuring at this point because there's not going to be any more coming. And she's really good in this, so. Yeah. First of all, Miss Long, thank you very much for your help at the office and for passing this on to Jerry. I appreciate it more than you know. Now, Jerry, before I begin, I just want to thank you for listening to this material and for the opportunity you've given me. You know, lots of people think that guys like you, you know, people who've made it, lose their feeling for struggling young talent, such as myself. But now I know from experience that those people are just cynics embittered by their own failure. I know, Jerry, that you are as human as the rest of us, if not more so. Oh, well, I guess there's no point going on about it. You know how I feel. So let's get on with the show, The Best of Rupert Pupkin. Jerry, I've sketched out this little outline in order to save you a little bit of time, okay? It's a little introduction. So close your eyes and imagine it's exactly 6 o'clock. You're standing in the wings, and we hear Lou Brown and the orchestra strike up your theme song. And now, from New York, it's the Jerry Langford Show, with Jerry's guests, Richard Pryor, Ben Gazzara, Elizabeth Ashley, Carol Burnett, and the comedy find of the year, making his television debut, Rupert Pupkin, the new Rupert. king of comedy. Rupert! Are you crazy? Say What's the matter with you? Yeah, ah, you fell asleep. Lower it! Oh. 
So for our feature conversation, I was thinking about a small trio of crime thrillers that had to do with stand-up comedians sort of getting in over their heads in like a criminal activity that they're just not prepared for. It's kind of a strange idea that these movies would be connected together because the three movies we picked out don't really match up in a like filmmaking aesthetic or like a tone. They're all kind of all over the place. But um, I, I really like the idea that there's this whole subgenre of thrillers that's just these like stand-up comedy cr- criminals. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a niche yeah. thing, but I do think that there's some themes mm-hmm. that kind of run throughout the three movies, but you are right that they are very different yeah. kinds of films. And I guess the, the most different one, like the one that's like the furthest outlier is the first one chronologically. Mm-hmm. And that would be 1965's Mickey One. This is directed by Arthur Penn and starring Warren Beatty. Two years before they would sort of pioneer the new Hollywood movement with Bonnie and Clyde is the mm-hmm. film that most people cite as being the first new Hollywood film. This one came two years before. It's much weirder. It's a lot more off-putting and it just didn't hit with audiences because nobody knew what to do with it. The production company didn't even put it in theatrical run. It went through drive-ins, which is kind of like a weird way of dumping something you just don't even understand. And it doesn't feel at all like a drive-in kind of movie to me. It feels more like um, it's got this European, French, New Wave feel too, which I think is like because of the time period, like mid sixties, mm-hmm. that that style of filmmaking was definitely coming. That's in what the, a lot of, the mainstream. Yeah, that's more. what a lot of people say is New Hollywood. It's like these young directors taking influence from the French New Wave directors and then basically applying them to like major Hollywood movie studios. So you have these like mm-hmm. movies without happy endings. Uh, they have these like very intense cinematography experiments. And but this one feels like it's still more like it hasn't quite moved on to that phase of it like it's still kind of beholden to that older french new wave yeah it's almost like a pastiche of french new wave but with a very american subject which is this guy who is working for these nightclubs as a stand-up comedian um he also is a drunk and a gambler and he commits some sort of offense to the mob that owns the clubs but no one will tell him what it is and he has to go through this like kafka-esque like crisis where he flees the city Starts up in a new town and starts doing stand-up comedy under a fake alias just to make buy, just to make do. And he's just is convinced that someone is after him, but nobody knows why exactly. And he was too drunk to remember, right. really. Um, and the movie plays with that idea that maybe no one is after him, but he does have this huge crime syndicate that sort of pops up every now and then just because they happen to be the people that own these nightclubs. Right. And that, that style of stand-up that he does is very American. It's got this like kind of Rodney Dangerfield, yeah. Catskills like, awfulness to that, it. I mean, that's definitely the main thing that feels dated mm-hmm. in this movie is the comedy. I mean, it's, yeah. like you said, it's it's that old-fashioned style that's kind of fallen out yeah. of favor. But putting that aside, though, I I really love the kind of experimental editing mm-hmm. in this movie. I love that it plays around with time a lot. Like, he'll jump back to a previous memory, and then five minutes later, we're in the same scene. We kind of forgot that we yeah. went back in time. And then there's the score's really good, too. There's kind of like this bossa nova, jazzy soundtrack that runs throughout the whole thing yeah that never stops (laughs) from the Mm -hmm. opening credits is this weird montage where like you said time is like a blur and it almost looks like you're watching an intro to a sitcom or something like 
you get the full scope of who this guy is, what world he's in, what he's like when he's in his off stage and on stage. Yeah, I, that's I knew I was gonna like the movie from that very first shot of the old man in the bathhouse oh, and their towels laughing, yeah. and it's the very first shot. And it's so weird. You're like, what the hell is going on? And there's so many odd moments like that throughout the whole thing. Like you have people that are like randomly jumping on trampolines. You have, like, a scene where he's cleaning up his apartment and the movie speeds up really fast. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have, like, this weird art... The artist is what he's listed as in the credits. This weird, like, homeless guy that sets up a giant... um, what would you even call like, it? Kind of like, like a Rube Goldberg contraption. Right, that's what I was looking for. And it's set up to remind him of his greatest fear, which is that the mob is going to put him in a car and then crush him in a junkyard and no one will ever see him again. So this sort of like Marcel Marceau type who doesn't speak and he acts like a mime, he just kind of waves at him encouragingly every now and then. And mm-hmm. then, like you said, he builds this big Rube Goldberg machine that basically just shows him, like, getting crushed in the junkyard. Yeah. It's so weird. But then, That was the best moment of the movie for me. Oh, yeah. I thought that was definitely the highlight. And then the suds, like, mm-hmm. all the bubbles coming, like, all that stuff really, like, left a big impression on me. Yeah. It doesn't sound like you cared for it as much as no, I did. It reminded me of when we watched um, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. Mm-hmm. It was like, I admired so much of the filmmaking technique, but it was also just so hard to get a hold on and so kind of persistently shifting that I could never sort of fall in with it. Like I was always just watching it as like an odd thing, not right. Not like getting immersed in it as like a cinematic experience. Yeah, you're kind of watching it from a distance and like appreciating it, but yeah. you never can get fully immersed. I don't think this one's quite as annoying as Sweet Sweetback. Like there's no like repetitive scenes of him running well, yeah and it's also just a more well done movie just obviously using better camera equipment and better editing and yeah better actors like so it's on a whole nother level but i definitely know what you're saying i and i also think that probably has something to do with like the fact that i do really like french new wave and mm-hmm. do have in the past i kind of sought out those sort of movies where I don't feel like that's quite your, you know, main, one of your main, like, favorite kinds of movies. Yeah, you know? I, I usually stick to the more accessible end of those. I'm trying to think of the Godard movie where it's like his school days. Is that like Breathless or something? I like, know, oh, I think that's 400 Blows. Yeah, I liked that one that's a lot. That's a great one, yeah. And there are moments of, like, some Fellini movies I like. Uh, this, this actually reminded me a lot of Breathless mm-hmm. with some of the, especially some of the, like, jump cuts is very, very much like something he would do. But, I no, I definitely... Um, I know what you're saying, and I kind of was feeling that way up until the audition scene, yeah. which I think is so fantastic. It's like him, you know, he feels like the mob's after me. Finally, he's like, I'm going to confront them. And he has this audition, and he's on this empty stage, and he's in the dark, and there's just a single spotlight on him. Mm-hmm. I don't know, that's such kind of like an iconic sort of scene that it kind of got me thinking like, like, was this movie really trying to say something about being an artist or being a comedian or being an entertainer? I think it actually was. I mean, he's running from basically success or he's running from that his entire like life, pretty much, at least as we know him in the movie. And then this artist character, this, you know, homeless guy, I, I don't think he's called the artist like On by screen. accident. Yeah. Or, but I'm saying like he's listed as the artist in the, the credits. And I think that was definitely on purpose. He's like the inspiration. Yeah. And he finally, like, inspires him to, like, confront, you know, his, like, his fears. Mm -hmm. And, like I said, that scene of him alone on a black, like, empty stage, like, kind of brought that home for me. I'm like, oh, okay, like, this actually has some, like, depth 
to it. It's not just an experiment in like avant-garde like cinematography or editing or like it did the movie did connect with me on like a deeper level, but and I think that that's about as far as I could get into that aspect yeah. of it. That 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 scene works for me really well just like the Rube Goldberg machine because it actually slows down to sort of like soak into a moment which the yeah. movie does not do often yeah. and I really like how the spotlight in that scene just intensifies because it's the only like image that you can pick out in the dark mm-hmm. and it becomes almost like a god that he like has no choice but to confront this like spotlight in his craft even though he knows it's going to kill him eventually right and he does get a vicious beating towards the end and presumably he he is like right Someone is after him, but no one can name the offense. Uh, maybe he slept with the mobster's wife, or no. It. I think what you said about it being Kafka-esque is like the best way to put it because it's exactly like um, the, the trial. The trial, yeah. You know, it's like wh- what am I charged with? Or it's the same thing, and that leads to so much like uneasiness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's saying so. I don't know. That was really good as well. Yeah, I, I actually liked all three of these stand-up comedy movies. That was just the one I can't go over the moon for like I, I liked it but i wasn't able to fully give into it and maybe it's something where i do have to watch it a couple more times another thing too is like i thought warren Beatty. i don't know if he was already a star at this point i don't think so it wasn't really till bonnie and clyde what because he definitely has that like star power he's a handsome dude <laughs> yeah no it's kind of nice seeing him in his like you know younger days uh he definitely the camera definitely likes his his face like he's got that that star power and it, like you said the scenes where he can actually like act and like kind of slow down like there's a scene where he's playing piano he definitely has a star power quality to him and it works in the movie too because there's this uh stretch where he's homeless when he first runs away and he can't live a life outside of the spotlight because he's he is such a striking presence and he feels the need to entertain and he Mm -hmm. looks like a movie star like he can't help but slink back into these clubs and sort of heckle the other comedians are on stage by shouting their own jokes back at them right the life just calls to him because he is such like an instant star uh and that's all part of just him being a beautiful young man <laughs> yeah even even those jokes are terrible i yeah i i really enjoy it i do think it's probably worth another watch yeah i think so, more people should see it it's kind of hard. i had never heard of this before you told me yeah. so i'm glad you liked it because yeah yeah um and the next movie we watched was from over a decade later directed by richard attenborough who most people know is the old man from jurassic park uh and starring anthony hopkins it's the film called magic uh anthony hopkins is a magician who's failing to connect with his audiences while he's on stage. He does these tricks perfectly executed, but he has no people skills at all until he adopts this ventriloquist puppet called Fats who tells these really awful, mean, Don Rickles-type jokes. And the act becomes sort of a stand-up comedy act with uh, magic kind of as a second thought. And he makes it big. He goes to the Tonight Show a few times. He's about to get his own pilot. Uh, His... Agent Burgess Meredith. Burgess Meredith? Yeah. <laughs> I said his I name love, backwards. <laughs> who I love, by the way. He's one of my favorite actors from that time period. Everything he's in, I usually end up liking. Yeah, he's wonderful in this. Mm-hmm. He scores him a deal. He's basically setting him up to Easy Street. Uh, but all that Anthony Hopkins' character has to do is take a psychological exam. And he just refuses. And On principle. Runs to his old town from where he's from. Seeks out an old flame with uh, Anne Margaret, 
who he used to pine for in high school. And when people try to drag him away from the situation back to the spotlight, Fats gets really nervous and starts convincing him to kill people to or does, Fat, or does Fats kill them? Uh, I don't know. Let's not... Are we, are we going to spoil anything here? Let's not spoil it. Well, well, he becomes a murderer, which is why it qualifies as a crime thriller, I think. Yeah. No, but they, they definitely... That question, I, I was definitely wondering where it was going. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, is he actually doing the killing or is it the... But that gets answered pretty clearly. Yeah, it starts off though like Fats commands him to murder people because Fats is a doll and he can't quite do it. But Fats does become more involved with the murders as it goes yeah. on. Well, and you know what's funny too is like they kind of leave it a little ambiguous as to if the doll is actually alive because mm-hmm. there's a few shots... I don't know if they did this intentionally where it looks like he moves mm-hmm. when Anthony Hopkins isn't around. And I don't know if that was like an error on or if that was intentional, basically. Yeah. yeah like Anthony Hopkins will walk to the other end of the room and Fats' eyes will kind of follow him and stuff like that. But you'll always see, it will never be in the middle of the frame. It's always kind of off center. Yeah. Are like out of focus. It definitely makes you really uneasy because it's a creepy ventriloquist doll. It yeah. kind of looks like him, but as like a cartoon boy, which is a good dynamic. They dress kind of similar mm-hmm. too, which I thought was strange. Um, <laughs> and Anthony Hopkins voices the doll. He tells these. I wish I had written down some quotes because his, his jokes are actually funny. Yeah. As opposed to the other people on here. Well, you know, apparently I was reading that Hopkins did actually learn to do magic and ventriloquism. Oh wow! Before doing this film. So a lot of the stuff in there is him actually doing, you know, the voice for the doll while he's... Operating it? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. I don't know that. Which I think is really awesome, but the voice he chooses for doll is very creepy. Mm-hmm. Like... Yeah, everyone's delighted by this doll, but as an audience, you're like, ew. Yeah, it like when he first introduces the <laughs> doll to his love interest, mm-hmm. she just goes ecstatic, like, oh, he's great. And I'm like, no, he's not. He's terrifying. <laughs> don't don't you see? And uh, there's no... Basically, Fats just gets jealous because he's with this woman. Yeah, he doesn't like being the third wheel yeah so like anthony hopkins is having sex and in the other room fast <laughs> is just sitting there and the camera keeps cutting back because you know that he can't stop thinking about this doll yeah the doll like keeps intruding his thoughts during his like love making yeah so he's kind of setting up an impossible situation where they could run off together and be alone because he needs this like crutch of a ventriloquist doll to make it. Yeah, I thought the scene that really brought that idea home and definitely you know, one of the best scenes in the movie was when Burgess Meredith shows up to like rescue him and bring him back, mm-hmm. and he you know tells him, oh you know you have a, you have a problem you need to see help, and he's like, look if you can not if the doll can just not talk for five minutes, if you're gonna sit here as a human and not do the doll voice, I'll leave. And he just can't do it. He makes it like two and a half minutes at most. <laughs> well, and what's great about that too is as I was watching the scene, you know, Hopkins is kind of like very apprehensive and like he keeps asking Burgess Meredith at the time. And it's like double or it's like half time. So when an actual minute goes by in that scene, he asks him like, what time are we at? And Burgess Meredith will say 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. You really feel like Hopkins character feels like it's just dragging yeah. On, because then he asks, like, how long has it been? It's really been two minutes, but he says a minute. And so it keeps doing that, and then he can only make it, like, two and a half minutes. Yeah. I thought that was great. Way back when we did our, like, second episode, which was 
all evil doll movies like too many evil doll movies yeah um that was the scene that really stuck out to me then too because i've watched it for that as well burgess meredith is just so nice and so cool in this movie yeah what a good agent yeah like everyone needs an agent and really hard to kill for an old man (laughs) that's where when uh they pulled him out of the water Mm -hmm. i thought he was just gonna come back to life like he he might have for like a second at least yeah it's a tough tough old bird what did what did you think of hopkins uh his performance in this movie uh definitely some pre-hannibal lecter vibes in there i don't know i know he used to do shakespeare theater with like maggie smith and ian mckellen like way back in the day in britain Mm -hmm. so i don't know how many of these type roles he had done before magic but this feels like the start of like his usual thing like this feels like a early stirring of like the creepy anthony hopkins we've we've come to know uh and maybe he even gets the typecast in like maybe he's really right. good at other stuff we just don't get to see because he's so good at playing these like creep characters yeah he he is really good i mean he's a good actor all around but yeah i think this was yeah the first role where he really not that he's hamming it up necessarily but he's definitely having like more fun with the character i guess and um I thought his performance was really good. And I, I especially liked how later on as he's really going down, going into the deep end, uh, a lot of times the shadows will kind of make him look like a doll. I don't know if you caught on that. Like there was a scene where he's waiting for Aunt Margaret's character to open her door mm-hmm. to get this thing he had carved for and he's just standing there against the wall and the shadows are kind of like segmenting hi- his face yeah segmenting his face to where he really does just look like the doll like he's fully transformed mm-hmm. little little touches like that I'm I really interested admired. in whatever Richard Attenborough might have directed besides this because this movie's really well considered for like a little horror thriller like it's really well put together yeah I, I don't know what else he's done it seems like it came out what in 78 is um, that right yeah 78 i have like heard about this movie but just like kind of in passing like through my mom mm-hmm. and mentioned it before but for being such like kind of an odd yet good well-made movie it kind of has fallen through the cracks and yeah. um i wonder if that's because it was before that time in, like the early mid 80s where horror started really becoming like a mainstream profitable thing yeah. like this isn't really like a horror movie like you know halloween or no it's or not something. a slasher film it's like a psychological horror but it seems like it would have been more successful had it come out in like the 80s it also kind of plays like a tender drama. Like that scene with with the stopwatch where he can't keep Fats quiet for five minutes. It's mm-hmm. a deeply sad scene. Like, yeah, you feel really bad for this guy, and right. then he starts committing really violent crimes. <laughs> Your uh, uh, empathy for him like slips away a little bit, but it, it's it's really sad that he's like on the precipice of like doing well, but he's obviously just mentally ill and can't like keep himself together yeah i mean so maybe that keeps it from being popular because it's not like a like easy cheap thrills horror film it's kind of a tender drama during a lot of its moments as well yeah it is and as far as the whole um him not being able to you know handle success all that like there was a line early in the movie where burgess meredith is telling him about how he got this pilot I forget the exact line, but he says basically, like, don't turn into an asshole. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I've seen so many people that can't handle success, and they turn into an asshole. And 
you know, Hopkins kind of shrugs it off or whatever, but that's totally like foreshadowing because that's what he, not even an asshole, he ends up being like the ultimate asshole, ultimate asshole, a murderer. <laughs> but no, and I think that's very, very true. A lot of people that try to make it in show business and then they finally get the success and they can't handle it. Yeah, if he had stayed in that small club without all the attention of like the Tonight Show and stuff, where he has to like sign all these autographs and like go under the scrutiny of like NBC who wanted to buy his pilot, he would have been probably fine. He would have been like sad and alone, but he wouldn't have uh, exploded and committed these crimes the way he does. I don't know if you would uh, agree with this, but I definitely thought there was something to the fact that there's a big jump in time from him like. No one paying attention to him at the comedy club Mm -hmm. to like a a scene or two later, he's like a success signing autographs. And we don't ever see that period of time. Like, how did he decide to become a ventriloquist? Like, and they don't show him practicing. He just like, they just kind of jump forward in time. Oh, he's a success now. And it kind of got me thinking like, what if this is like a Robert Johnson type situation? Like he he sold his soul (laughs) to, because they make a big deal throughout the whole movie about the difference between tricks and magic, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and tricks are like, I guess something you know there's some gimmick and anybody can do it but magic is like something transcendent yeah he talks about how he does magic but it's like how did he learn that in such a short amount of time it seems like maybe that's where he kind of went wrong where this sort of like supernatural element came into it yeah i don't know i don't know either i mean he had a dying mentor early in the film Mm -hmm. and maybe the mentor had taught him ventriloquism before he died i don't i don't i don't know how that worked out doesn't really matter. It's no. it's uh, definitely puts you on edge that this like powerful force that commands his every thought all of a sudden appears. Right, and, the, and it's ambiguous. Like, where did it come from? The first two scenes you get that are like kind of lengthy is him doing the act with fats and without fats. It starts. It starts with him bombing on stage without the comedy to keep people's attention, and then the next like lengthy scene we get is him with the doll, and he's like excelling at his craft, mm-hmm. and it's definitely like unnerving. It's like where did this thing come from? <laughs> exactly. I don't like looking at it. Yeah, and the the doll itself does look very creepy. I mean, I just don't like dolls <laughs> in general, but this one especially creeped me out. Yeah, I think that's why I like watching evil doll movies, because I'm easily creeped out by them, so it's like an easy in for me for like a horror film. Well, and another thing I wanted to ask, because I I didn't know if it was or not, was this movie rated R? Uh, It has to be. There's so much blue material. He says fuck and like slut and stuff, like fairly often. Right, but that's... That's what I don't get. It's like, it wasn't that bloody. Mm-mm. I don't think the violence alone would have gotten it in R. So the only reason it's R-rated is for the language, which seems kind of... It seemed a little unnecessary, really. I don't know. It makes the doll scarier. Like, it makes them more violent. If it was kind of a cutesy cat skills routine, kind of like the one in Mickey 1, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be as, like, unnerving as him doing this, like, blue material for adults where he's, like, dropping F-bombs every three words. Well, I guess that just shows, like, kind of the evolution of comedy from the like early 60s mm-hmm. and Mickey one and then this is like coming in the 80s where you get more of the like raunchier yeah comedians I guess but and then we kind of slip backwards a little bit with the next movie the king of comedy directed by Martin Scorsese starring Rob De Niro as Rupert Pupkin which is right up with there for me with like Norman Bates and anyone oh, yeah. else just like one of the creepiest psychological horror creations in cinema. This one's in 1982, but the comedy slips further back to that early Catskills humor from Mickey One. But that's why he's sort of not good. No. I mean, he's like mediocre is what 
He really is. Yeah. But. So Robert De Niro is a struggling comedian who wants to get on The Tonight Show. Um, this is hosted by Jerry Lewis. I can't remember what his character's name in, in the film is, but he's playing... I always just see him as Jerry Lewis. Yeah, I he's mean, pretty much just playing himself. Yeah. He keeps trying to sneak into his office and sort of like get on the show through the back door that way and doesn't want to audition. He just like thinks he's owed it to be on the show because he obsessively watches it to the point where his basement is set up to look like the show. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He has his own audience plastered on the wall uh, and cut out guests like Liza Minnelli where he sits at the, the couch and just like, I don't know, chatters right. like stupid talk show chatter. And the whole time his mom is yelling at him from the other room. But we never see her, so we're never really convinced that she's there. He hooks up with Sandra Bernhardt, who's another... um, She's not a comedian, but she is obsessed with Jerry Lewis. And uh, the two of them decide to kidnap him so that she can spend time with him in a private setting. And he can sneak on to The Tonight Show to do his stand-up routine. And become the king of comedy, which he feels like is a title owed to him. Oh, man. This is a masterpiece. I'm not oh, yeah. sure why this isn't considered one of the best Scorsese films. Oh, man. I think there's so many reasons why. And I don't know. I think it has a lot to do with, I guess, the tone mm-hmm. of the movie, I think, is what throws people off. Because it, it's not nearly as like flashy as some other Scorsese movies as far as like... He doesn't use any long takes or big dolly shots or mm-hmm. anything. It's... Kind of like claustrophobic, really. Like the camera never really moves all that much. You're just kind of stuck in this space with these characters. Yeah. And so in that way, it doesn't immediately pop out to you as like being a great Scorsese from like the directing cinematography but then, standpoint. But then once you start sinking into Rupert Pupkin's like fantasies, there are some really weird looking shots. Like mm-hmm. uh, in the basement, him against that giant wall of like black and white laughing faces is really horrific. There's a scene where he's imagining that he's in Jerry's office sort of cutting the shit. Uh, right. And Jerry kind of like shakes his neck playfully. Um, and that office is lit like this like neon early 80s nightmare. So I, I think it's like in the production design, not necessarily like you said in the camera movement, but just the way this story unfolds is really fun in a really like scary way. I, I just don't think audiences knew how to handle this kind of awkward comedy. Mm-hmm. It feels definitely ahead of its time in that way. Like that style of humor has been really popular in the last, I don't know, decade. Or like Neil Hamburger. Or, or even like stuff like maybe The Office or like just being able to laugh at like awkward kind of situations. Mm-hmm. I think in the early 80s, it wasn't quite as... Um, I, I think audiences sitting in this movie would kind of feel the need to laugh but not feel like it's okay really like oh this movie's like pretty dark and messed up i shouldn't be laughing at this whereas like audiences nowadays like they kind of expect that that's okay i think tonally it's a pretty strange yeah movie it's humor through discomfort there's not like a lot of one-liners not any that you would laugh at anyway it's more like the absurdity of the situation and his delusional what's the word delusions of grandeur yeah his delusions of grandeur his uh feels like it's owed to him to be on the show it just leads him to these situations where it's not how people should act like crosses so many social boundaries to achieve his goal and it's such a delirious moment when he kind of gets there like he finds a way onto the show and then he sort of tells his whole life story in a sort of serious manner there's some jokes thrown in and you sort of get the full picture of like how fucked up his life has been in those last few moments no and the thing I, I loved about that final stand-up routine, he does reveal a lot about himself, but he also, you know, throws in some jokes 
And the whole routine, you think about it, and it's like not bad, and it's not good either. It's just like very, very mediocre. Mm -hmm. And like, I think that was a really smart, because we never really see him do his full performance until the end. So you're always kind of wondering like, oh, uh, maybe this performance will be really good. Or maybe (laughs) it will be like really awful. Yeah. And the fact that they decide to make it as like mediocre as possible, I think was like the perfect way to approach that. Because it doesn't feel like he should bomb necessarily. Like Mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense that he's done all this crazy shit to get to this spot. And then he just is kind of like blah, you know, (laughs) meh. Like, that wasn't that bad. But in his head, he, like, conquered the world. Like, he is, like, a star in that moment. Yeah, I mean, and in that way, I think the movie, I mean, I know I say this a lot when I watch some older movies, but it definitely was ahead of its time as far as, like, thematically Mm -hmm. um, of, like, celebrity culture and 15 minutes of fame. And and this was, like, right around the time when, like, stand-up comedy was becoming really popular. Mm -hmm. They had, like, Lenny Bruce and stuff, like in the past but really like this was like the rock star era of stand-up comedians right like you know with sam kennison and richard pryor and all that stuff and um i don't know i I think it's like message and its concerns about celebrity are still like very much a part of like american culture today yeah there's these scenes where jerry lewis is walking down the street and people just sort of like take for advantage that he should pay attention to them it's like he'll walk by and some old lady will ask him for an autograph he's like no i'm 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 busy. And she'll yell at like, cancer! You should only get cancer! Jeez. It's like, that turns yeah. so gross in like such a split second. Just people feel yeah. entitled to his time. And you'll see that on like, still see that on like TMZ mm-hmm. and stuff or like some some celebrity had an altercation with a fan. It's like, because people are assholes. And All like, day. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, if you're like trying to hang out with your family or eat a meal and Someone's asking for an autograph. I mean, that's just rude. Speaking of this being a young time for comedians, this was like very early in Sandra Bernhardt's career. Probably her first like big break. Yeah. She's an incredible screen presence in this movie. Has she done a lot of films? I don't think so. Because I've only really seen her in this and maybe one or two other movies that I can remember. She's really intense in this movie. In she a is. In a way that feels like punk. Like it feels like not polished in this really like believable way. And she's just as unhinged as Rupert. And of course they hate each other because they have the same problem. Yeah, I kind of, I love their dynamic. Yeah. They're both kind of struggling with the same stuff and just going, going about dealing with in really destructive ways. Yeah, their delusions cannot overlap to both exist. So they like hate each other because they keep crashing each other back down to reality where they don't have a personal relationship with a celebrity that they feel like they're entitled to. Yeah, she she was really... And also Jerry Lewis too. I mean, even though he is just playing himself, mm-hmm. I mean, him playing himself is just what that movie needed, you know, the, with that character... Yeah, he's not doing the annoying, like, Jerry Lewis voices. He's not being over the top in any way. He's just kind of a normal guy. Yeah, like how you would imagine him being outside of, you know, in the the real world, mm-hmm. I guess. But, I mean, is this, do, like, would you consider this one of De Niro's best performances? Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I put it up there. I Definitely in the top one or two, I mean. I mean, I usually consider his work with Scorsese being his best stuff. And this is in that sweet spot. Like, it's after... Raging Bull, and it's before Goodfellas. It's after Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. Like this is when his career was like all home runs, you know. Yeah, no, and this he knocked it out the park. I think this is one of, if not his best performances. I mean, it's crazy how like calm and pleasant he is on the surface. 
but he still creeps you out with everything he says just because he's so convinced of his own delusions. Like, it's it's a really crazy kind of performance. And he gets lost in, in the character to the point where I imagine that he probably had to do stand-up comedy or at least learn the craft a little bit to mm-hmm. sort of glob on to some people who actually act like that. It felt like he was studying a real character. Not, yeah. You don't really see him as Robert De Niro, even though he's such a recognizable face. He's got the stupid little mustache and the dumb smile. Yeah, all the little mannerisms and everything. I mean, he transforms into Rupert Pupkin. <laughs> Rupert Pupkin. I yeah, and just to go back to kind of what we were talking about at the beginning, like what is really surprising to me is like the fact that critics did not like this movie. So the critics were wrong, but. I don't know, Scorsese's such a recognizable name that people are always going to go back and watch his old movies anyway. There's a similar situation right now. His movie Silence is not doing well at all in the theater. A lot of mixed critical reviews based mm-hmm. on how people read the ending of the film, um, which is kind of a similar situation to this one. So yeah, maybe it just takes I time. Definitely, I definitely want to check that out. I know you told me about it. It's yeah, on it's my list. really good. But would you say that that was your favorite out of the three you watched? I know you were kind of high on Mickey One. Uh, no, I mean, King of Comedy is like another level of appreciation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like definitely one of, if not my favorite, Scorsese. And I mean, I mean, Mickey One is definitely worth watching. And I'm glad I'm glad I did. But no, nah, King of Comedy is yeah. one of the best. I mean, that's a five-star masterpiece, like you said. Totally agree. Well... If you want to check out more Swamp Flicks reviews, there's a good number of these podcast episodes now. Woo. And we post a new review every day. Check us out, swampflicks.com. Bye. Bye. Bye.